Hello, this is James Fairchild and welcome to my podcast. Today we're going to be looking at IR35. First of all, the week's business tip. And thank you to the person who shared this with me. Google have introduced a new service called Google My Business and all businesses are able to claim a free, or as I understand, a free page for your business in Google My Business and then edit that page and add services and so on accordingly. I have claimed my own page and I'll perhaps have a play around over the coming days. I had a question from a listener, Dominic, who asked me if I could explain the forthcoming changes to IR35. And he then asked me a couple of specific questions over whether it would affect him or not. So IR35 is a piece of legislation, a couple of pieces of legislation from the, as it was called at the time, Inland Revenue, now of course HMRC, which were created to deal with the problem that people who worked as a contractor and an IT contractor was a a typical person, although contracting did then and does now exist in a variety of sectors. So what people were doing back in the 90s was creating a limited company and billing their clients either direct from the limited company or perhaps via an agency and people although they were working in a way that was very similar to regular employees people were taking money out of that limited company mainly as dividends which has the effect or at the time had the effect of paying a lot less in both tax and national insurance So the beast that is IR35 was created to deal with that situation. So back then, if a business was deemed to meet the definition of a service company, then a series of um, matters were considered with the objective of deciding whether this particular working assignment was caught by IR35 or not and if it was caught then essentially uh, tax and national insurance need to be paid on all the remuneration that the worker took that related to that contract i.e. they could no longer take the majority of that income as dividends. This then changed three years ago in April 2017 in the respect of public sector roles whereby it became the responsibility of that public sector organisation whether a local council or a government department and so on to determine the status under IR35. So it was no longer up to 
the intermediary to decide the party who made the decision was the public sector organisation that the work was being done on behalf of. The 6th of April 2020, so two months time, sees the, this concept of the public sector organisation determining the status extend to medium and large companies in both the private sector and the third sector, i.e. charities. And there are three requirements of which if at least two are met, then this applies to your organisation. And these are the same requirements as for the small companies regime. So two out of the three of the following, you have an annual turnover of more than 10.2 million. You have balance sheet asset total of more than 5.1 million and or you have more than 50 employees and in the case of connected companies or subsidiary companies it is at a group level that those numbers are to be considered so all businesses including small businesses as just defined and indeed sole trader businesses need to think very carefully about anyone who works for them on a basis which is akin to being an employee but where they are not paid as one and this could be somebody paid on a self-employed basis or indeed somebody paid via a limited company or or any basis where you do not pay a normal payroll i.e. deduct income tax and national insurance. There are a series of tests or considerations that I will come on to but in general if you have a person or a few people who are remunerated through what we call off payroll working you will perhaps a continue listening and b give some consideration to the issues. IR35 and the associated issues can affect both senior level people with specialist skills and also lower level staff who may, not always, but may be encouraged into these arrangements. You'll know of course around the gig economy the whole world of zero hours contract, the idea of organisations wanting to reduce their headcount so they use staff that aren't contractually employed by them, and so on and so forth. Just going back to the definition earlier of either a medium stroke large company or a small company, if you are a small company, then you can leave the intermediary to decide status. You are not affected by the changes that happen this coming April. If, however, you are part of the public sector as of now, or if you are a medium or large business or charity from April 2020, it will be you who is responsible for deciding status and you are expected to 
make those assessments in a fair and consistent way and by having regard to a number of factors. It's important to mention also that all end user businesses can potentially be held responsible for national insurance and tax even if your arrangements are otherwise compliant. It's also worth pointing out that there is a risk to you as a business of a worker asserting that they are in fact an employee and hence able to make certain claims in the employment tribunal and there have been a number of cases around both agency workers and independent contractors, self-employed people of which the most famous case is Uber which that's to say certain individual Uber drivers versus Uber which is being appealed to the Supreme Court and I guess we'll hear about that uh, at some point this year. Back in the late 90s there were four suggested tests for considering worker status or employment status both from the perspective of PAYE and employment rights and those were the tests of control, integration, business reality and mutuality of obligation. This comes from a paper written in 1999 called The Employment Status of Individuals in Non-Standard Employment. Nowadays HMRC list 13 areas for you to consider but they emphasize that the definition or the decision is to be made based on your assessment of all factors rather than a specific test as such. So the 13 factors on the list are control, personal service, equipment, financial risk, basis of payment, mutuality of obligation, holiday pay, sick pay and pension rights, whether the worker is part and parcel of the organisation, whether there's a right to terminate a contract, whether there's an opportunity for the worker, the contractor, to profit from sound management, any personal factors, the length of an engagement, and the intention of the parties. HMRC has created an online checker. If you look on the gov.uk site for check employment status for tax, you will be able to access that checker. And a good thing about that is that HMRC provided that you are honest with the information that's entered into that tracker. HMRC states that they will abide by whatever results the tracker gives. A couple of examples relating to my world of accountancy. If someone is working as an accountancy contractor for a period of say two years, where they're working four days a week for a particular end client, and that this is all of their working week or almost all their working week and almost their only source of income, then 
IR35 may well apply. If on the other hand you have someone who delivers for example training on a finance system which could be on an ad hoc basis, it could be once a month and they come into your business and they will have several other clients or many other clients as well then something like that I would suggest IR35 is unlikely to apply. As with all such issues you will want to take specific advice both from an accountant, from the perspective of the payroll side of IR35, PAYE and so on and potentially also advice from an employment consultant or an employment solicitor around any employment uh, risk, uh, any risk of claims in the employment tribunal that could in theory be made against you. Finally, if you are the worker, and returning to the question uh, asked earlier, then you've got a couple of choices as I see it. One is to diversify your client base. Don't be reliant on one main client. Another option potentially is to change arrangements so you take more business risk. For example, could you move to a price per job, however that might be calculated, as opposed to a rate per hour or a rate per day? Or the other option, if you do decide that you are probably caught by this, then maybe there's an opportunity to negotiate a contract of employment with this business so that you do receive benefits that normal full-time or part-time employees get. That's for you to consider, obviously. As always, I'm very pleased to receive your tips, questions, so on. I can be emailed at media at weeklyfd.com or you can tweet me at James D. Fairchild. Future topics that I'm planning to cover include inheritance, debt collection, ISAs and pensions, making tax digital, and I plan that next week I shall give you guys an update on the forthcoming capital gains tax changes. I'm James Fairchild. And I remind you that this podcast gives general case information, which, whilst I believe it's valid at the time of recording, can and most probably will change in the future. And in any case, it may not be the appropriate or the best decision for you and your business with regard to specific circumstances. Please do seek specialist specific advice from your accountant, solicitor, financial advisor, as the case may be. The author and creator of this podcast and the various podcast apps and players or websites that you might be using have no liability for any reliance on the content herein. And the content is aimed principally at England. Thank you and goodbye.